everyone. Welcome to episode 20 of the Board Game Gambit podcast, Feel the Brain Burn. Today we're talking about games that make you think, where you can actually feel your brain thinking because of the depth of the game and the complexity that you have to wrap your head around. So as always, I'm Nathan. And I'm Jackie. Welcome, everyone. So um, what have you been playing? We played the Search for Planet X. That you were very excited about, I seem to remember. Yes. Scott and I played it, and I was really excited for Scott to play it because I thought it would be a game that he would like. It's very much a logic puzzle, but I feel like the other games that I've played of it aren't as good, like uh, Cryptid. Yes. was one. Tobago was another that I've played. While I do like Tobago because it you're moving around and there's a lot of uh, player interaction, this has very low player interaction, mm-hmm. which I think is a positive for Scott. Uh, also, I feel like in a logic puzzle type game, I want lower player interaction. Just because you're you're trying to figure out different things on your own, whereas with Tobago you're trying to like find the exact location of the treasure and move around on the board and Search for Planet X is really 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 good, a really solid game. So <laughs> I grew up, you know those little magazines that they would sell. They were like little puzzle books. No idea or memory of these things but i grew up elsewhere so well true in the drugstore you could go over to like the magazine rack and there would be all all like the different types of magazines and and things and then there would always be like a monthly issue of puzzle games and i would buy them quite frequently and my favorite words thing to do out of those puzzle books were logic puzzles. Oh, if uh, Sierra is older than her youngest, the the youngest sibling, but uh, she doesn't have blue hair or something. So that kind of, it was just a book of those kinds of puzzles. Okay, no, then, then we add it too. Uh, we call it the... Weekly Enigma, it's it's a little publication that comes out every week in Italy. And we also had those, they were called Susie's Question, because apparently this Susie had nothing else to do than to go to parties and trying to figure out who was older among five brothers. <laughs> she could have just asked them, but I guess she was shy. Although I have to ask for my image of America, were you going by bicycle to buy these at the drugstore? No. That ruins my image. You have to realize that my idea of America in the 80s is basically Stranger Things. Oh, okay. okay. So every time something, someone tells me something uh, from that period, I get very excited and start imagining things. But okay. <laughs> so... Yes, it's a logic puzzle at its core. The You're trying to find the Planet X, which is harder than you think. There are two levels of the game. There's the basic game, and then there's... The advanced version has a lot more sectors, a lot more things for you to find. And 
it's it's so good though. The different things have rules on them on like, oh, the gas clouds can't be next to the dwarf planet or something like that. And that is standard for each game or do they change? Yes. Okay. There's a, there's a set standard of rules for each game. Then they also, depending on your level, you can choose more clues or less clues to get at the beginning. Um, and so because it was Scott's first game, I gave him more clues. I let him pick the more clues. I picked less. Then there are little things called research where you find out another sort of rule about things. It'll say research and it'll say gas clouds and comets or dwarf planet and asteroids. And so it'll have the title. So you know what the two things are about, but you don't know what the the thing is until you actually go and do the research. And it'll say, the dwarf planet is within two sectors of the asteroids or something. So you're getting more and more more clues as you go along. And you're also making theories, which is you're putting little guesses of what is in each sector down. And you're earning points if you're the first person to place those tokens. Or if you're even right, you also get points. So there's a lot of different ways to get points. And then you're trying to ultimately find Planet X. In order to solve for Planet X, you have to know what's on the left of it and on the right of it. Okay. And so it'll say, you know, what sector is it? What's in sector? If it's in sector three, then what's in sector two and what's in sector four? You have to have all that information in order to trigger the end game, essentially. And the other person has a a chance to sort of wrap up and either submit theories uh, to get more points that way if they don't know where Planet X is, or they can try and solve for Planet X also. And they get points based on how far behind they are from you when after you solve for Planet X. Is this scenario-based? You have a booklet of little scenarios, or is it generated at the beginning? How does that Oh my god, that's the best part. It's random generated on an app. Oh, okay. So every game is different. They have, and then you are, if you're playing with somebody, you input the same code, like it's like GGS3 or whatever, and you put, the other person puts that code in, and then it generates the same set. The same, yep, same rule set. This looks and sounds at the same time interesting, but I feel like I would probably like it more as a solo game. That's So that's the thing. I think that I'm going to try and play it as a solo game and see how I like it. I also got the the extra fancy components. Color me surprised. I know. <laughs> No, I mean, don't get me wrong. I like playing with with colorful and fancier bits. Um, but They are made from Renegade, so they sold them separately. It's from Renegade Games, Search for Planet X, which is interesting that we're talking about it because I was on BGG this morning, and it is number one on the hotness. I think oh. it's because it just came out. You should have not told me and then waited and went, look, now that I spoke about it, <laughs> All of a sudden, mid-podcast is the search for Planet X, and today we're going live. Uh, that was what I was <laughs> Actually, I was looking at the two designers, Matthew O'Malley and Ben Rossett, and they were both the designers of Between Two Cities. Oh. 
which is at the same time very different in that it's obviously it's a drafting game and so it's very interactive but at the same time I can see how someone designing a game like Between Two Cities where it's all about oh if you collect this many of these you get these points and you're trying to fit things in in a grid basically once you go past the drafting part it makes sense that it could have the same designers as someone very logic oriented so again i would like to try this but i once i'm sitting in front of someone i probably would rather play something where they are more involved directly in in my destiny so to speak but yeah i really like it i think i i'm trying not to play it too much because i've played it a few times with brian i and then i purchased it and then now i've played it with scott and I feel like this game could get kind of samey, even though it's, even though, like I said, it's randomly generated and things like that, because the the clues don't differ that much. They're all like, oh, this is within two sectors of this, or this is not within two sectors of this, or things like that. But it's really good. I really enjoy my plays of it. I think this is my fourth play of it. And I think, I just, I don't know. It's, it's a lot of fun. I like logic puzzles. Like I said, like I grew up on those. So yeah, I'm interested to see how the solo game plays. Cause I guess you play against an AI. I saw that people are raving about this. I went to, to the page and some people say it's the best game I've ever played. I also think that it, as you were saying at the beginning, it fits into a niche where the predecessors were not great or at least not great in doing what this seems to be doing tobago which by by the way they just announced an expansion for it i am yeah after so out of print after 11 years and it has a volcano and it's not a standalone is is a regular expansion it has a volcano that basically slowly changes the map i haven't read too much into the details but you put lava tokens out and so those reduce the dimensions or cut off certain things and so the the treasures evolve basically and they give you more more possibilities but this is very much based on trying to beat the other players to a treasure try to get into the big treasure in tobago you are playing cards to create the conditions for something so it's kind of a reverse logic puzzle you are creating the logic puzzle rather than solving it and other games cryptid was as you said very fine nothing particularly interesting about it it was very procedural and the other big one in this category which was also i think the first game to use an app to some success was alchemist i don't know if you have seen it no so i hated it um (laughs) (laughs) right off the gate i hated it probably beside its demerits i had a horrible experience with it it was I think it was the problem that was trying to merge a game like this with a Euro. Oh, no. So, for example, when I played it, I did quite well, despite um, messing up one thing in the deduction. And that was what annoyed me, that I messed it up, not because I jumped on an assumption, but because something, you know, I don't remember the details, but something in the detail of how the game was set up made it easier for me to make that mistake. But so the people who were going f- good on the deduction, uh, better than me, I I 
did better in the euro part, but the euro part was in function of this thing. And then there were artifacts that it was trying to be too much. Yeah, it sounds cumbersome. But at the time, it got a great reception. It's also a game that I've never seen anyone playing anymore. So probably it was more the novelty of the app. So it's interesting to see that this seems to have gone back to what this was supposed to be. Use the app to provide infinite puzzles, basically. And it's still rated pretty high, though. Alchemists? Yeah. yeah. And it came out in 2014. Yeah, and I know I am in the minority there. My rating of it is 2. A 2? Oh, no. Yeah. And the, well, the designer did just that, so he probably realized that it was a mistake and is now a monk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. I'm sure he's very proud of his work, and it was a very complex and well-built game. It just really wasn't for me. Yeah, he he made his uh, perfect game, and then he went away. He was like, "This is this is I can't go any higher than this. This is it. Cannot be topped." Yes. Yeah. What have you played? So on Friday, it it has been a, a period divided of gameplay. The semester started full swing, so I have I had to slow down a bit, but I got to play Rex. Which I had been waiting oh. for. Well, if you want to play Rex, you should show up from time, from time to time. Um, the <laughs> fact that you live elsewhere is not uh, an excuse. So we got to play Rex, which was, it had been way too long. So Rex, Final Days of an Empire, is the re-implementation of Dune. And they made certain rule changes that I don't know if they made it into the new Dune version, but at personally made the Rex my favorite incarnation of that system until the new one, which I haven't tried. Also, I'm not married to the Dune team. I like the books, but I find the visuals of the board game implementation not particularly pleasant. So I had been waiting to play this for a long time. We hadn't played it in years. It went way longer than it should have. And still, it was a blast. Everyone had fun. And when we finished, we realized that we were over four hours, which makes for the longest game of this that I have ever had. And still, it was amazing. So, Rex and Dune, obviously, there is very little new to Rex that was not in the original Dune, is based around the fact that there are very simple rules. Basically, you put people on the board, you move them around. If you are ever in a place with an opponent, you fight in what today is probably more famous as the scythe combat system where you decide how much power you want to to invest. And then you add leaders, which are basically a bonus like the, like the cards inside. And whoever has the most wins, whoever has the most pays the power that they have promised Basically, they remove that many troops, and whoever has not the most loses everything. And this is basically the game, but every player brings a radically game-breaking power to the table, and the absurdity of each of all this power basically balances the game out. And on top of that, there are special cards that most people don't know what they are until they buy them. Only one player at the table knows them. Uh, there are traders where if you have the right card out of a deck of 
30 and you can have multiple but normally you play with one at the right time in the right battle you can turn the battle to your favor lose nothing and destroy the opponent and then there is a giant space fleet that goes around the table and destroys things that is semi-random how it moves so you know where it could reach but you don't know where it would reach and the game lives and dies by the pace it's a game that we almost won in the first round so 20 minutes in but Anna had a card that destroyed the shield in the place where we were so we got destroyed by the by the spaceship and then the the alliance is shifted a few times and in the end Dan and I were able to take it on the final condition. So by stopping anyone else from winning, I had one of the factions that is half of their power is they win if no one else wins by the eighth turn. And so you could play trying to stall. We actually went all in in the turn five. We lost horrendously, but then we were able to to then prevent anyone else from winning. And it was absolutely great. And it's frustratingly good <laughs> yeah i've never played it so i would like to play it have you seen the new version of dune i've seen it um i've almost purchased it a few times i mean i'm sure especially for someone who likes dune there is no question that that's probably a good a good buy it's also a cheap because they well cheap not it's not a cheap game it's a well-made game but much cheaper than the out of print wrecks. Correct. Or of the out of print Dune that can go easily for hundreds of dollars. Um, I find that, again, you need to be really into the Dune game to prefer a map with all of the sand and little cardboard token rather than gorgeously illustrated ones. Um, but I do understand that for people who are really, really into the theme, the the big sandworm and all of that and the storm all of that makes a lot of sense. I'm excited for the movie. Oh yeah. Yeah. It looks cool. The the Dune one. Yeah, the the David Lynch one was a little weird, so we'll see what what comes of the new one. What what else have you played? Uh that's it. <laughs> I've been working, so well, we haven't talked about your experience with Cyclades. Oh. <laughs> I actually liked it. So Cyclades is by Bruno Cathala and Ludovic Malblanc from Madagot Games slash Asmodee because everything's kind of slash Asmodee. Um, <laughs> so Cyclades is an auction area control game. It's very different because the whole game, so you think that the game, the meat of the game is moving your th- troops around and and fighting and a la, you know, Blood Rage and all of the big, heavy, what genre is that? Dudes on the map, I think. Dudes on, dudes on the map games. So you think that that's where, like, the meat of the game is, but it's not. The meat of the game is performing these little auctions. So you're... You're sitting there and you're saying, okay, well, I'm going to pay this amount of money and I hope no one outbids me. And then someone inevitably does. And then you move and you outbid someone else and then they move and then they outbid the other person. And then that person comes to you and it's just a vicious cycle of outbidding, 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 outbidding until finally everyone is like, this is fine. 
<laughs> this will have to do. So uh, everyone pays what they bid and they then get to carry out the actions of their the gods that they bid for. And there's a lot of different actions that each god can take, but they're specific to that god. So if you really need to move troops, you need a specific god. If you really need more boats, you need a specific god. So it's a lot of fighting over the same thing if people want to do a specific action. I liked it. I thought it was interesting. The mechanism of the the auction did seem like a lot of the game, which going into it, I didn't think about. I thought that the game would be more about being on the map and like moving your people around and things like that. But it definitely felt much heavier focus on the auction portion of the game, which I like auctions. So it for me, it didn't bother me. But I think that one of the people that we played with was not prepared for it being just an auction game. Yeah, and Brian was saying that he would like the map part if it weren't for the uh, auction part. <laughs> but you... Which is- everything yeah but you pointed out that at that point there are better games that do that do the same while this specific game i didn't this specific instance of our playing the game i didn't particularly like it's told a lot normally it's a game that is won between the i don't know seventh and tenth round in my experience this went for like 18 rounds or something like that so but i really I have good memories of Cyclades, so I don't know if it is that it shows its age or if it were just one one-off uh, bad bad instance that something didn't click. But I remember when it came out being the first game that I liked in modern games with that being on the map, being present, probably specifically because the focus was not on oh i have all of these units with all of these powers and trying to attack you uh, battles are definitely not exciting quasi mathematical but not really because you have a die so the fact that that auction is where the game lives and die is what made sickle this interesting to me you uh, collecting a set of buildings, but they also do something. Each god has its own proviso. So Mars, Ares, because it's in Greek mythology, moves the, the troops and builds the forts. And Poseidon moves uh, the ships and builds the, the ports. And Athena simply takes you closer to victory because she's smart. And Zeus gives you powers to deal with various situations and then there are a bunch of special creatures and all of that i still find it charming to look at with the little minis and i do really like that quick auction back and forth the problem is i think also that as soon as one player becomes disengaged with that auction part uh, that mechanism becomes loose because the back and forth must be done with with determination, right? Not just because 
okay, this is cheap, but oh, if I go here, Nathan will probably go and beat Brian, then Brian will probably go and move me away, and I can get to the thing that I really like, that is that. And that didn't particularly work in our specific game, and so that stalled a little bit. Yeah, I feel like when Brian stopped caring (laughs) about the auction part, which was not super late into the game, but not super early into the game, maybe about a third of the way in, it made it difficult because Anna would come outbid me and then I would go outbid outbid Brian and Brian would be like, nah, whatever. And he would just go somewhere else. And the whole point was that I was supposed to outbid Brian. Brian was supposed to outbid Anna. Anna was supposed to bid you in all of this, keeping it competitive, keeping it where everyone is fighting for the God that they want, but also not overpaying so that they have enough money to do all the things that they want to do. And yeah, once he he stopped caring about it, it really started falling flat. I think he, he would like it more with the... One of the expansions radically changes the game. And for us, it changes it probably too much because it divides the board on two big islands. So you can constantly fight. There is another way to move troops that is unrelated to the, to the auction. So... He, he might like it much more with that. But anyhow, that was Cyclades again, 2009. I think when it came out, it was very innovative. It's considered part of a trilogy uh, by Matago with Kemet and Inish, Inis, uh, both mm. games that tried to do something else with the area control dudes on the map genre. I like Kemet, although not as much as I at least used to like Cicadis, and I was uh, not enamored with Inis, or Inish, I don't remember how to pronounce it, but indeed they, they certainly moved the needle because Cicadis is six years before the uh, Cry Havoc and the Blood Rage and the Rising Sun and all of those new area control with with some twist, right? So when it came out, it was in definitely new and interesting. And I still, I think I still like it, although it's definitely not a game that I want to play twice a month as I used to. Yeah. What else have you played? Um, I played Samurai Spirit, which I don't remember if you have talked um, earlier on the podcast. It's um, a co-op game. So that was when you went and procured food. <laughs> but it was actually as fun as I remembered. We lost it, which um, sometimes is good with cops to remember that you can lose them because otherwise they become too easy. And it's basically a very numerical, new number-based game. It's in the spirit of uh, Seven Samurais or <laughs> the Magnificent Seven in its Western version, but these are Samurais. And so each player has one Samurai and there are a bunch of ninjas coming into the, the town and coming uh, to destroy it. And the way this works is uh, there is a deck of ninjas that you have to go through three times. If you make it alive through the three, the three decks, you win the game. If you instead on the first, second, or third reshuffle, you you cannot go past and your village is destroyed, you lose. So on your turn, you have three options. You can pass, which you almost never want to do because once you pass, you're out of that 
part of the game, so you only do so when you're forced to. You can fight, which means flipping a card, and cards go at the beginning from one to four, then you add in fives and sixes. And you can either defend, which means trying to match a symbol on this fighting card with symbols on your player board, but you can only do it three times because there are only three symbols. Or you can attack, which means putting it on the right of your player board where you have a numerical track. And so you're trying to hit a certain number, which is something between 9 and 11, depending on your character, without going over. If you go over, you destroy a part of the village and you're out of the round. If you hit the number exactly, a special power triggers. And so it's very, very trying to find the right card at the right time. What makes it interesting is that each player has special powers like ignore one number or discard a certain kind of card or pass a card to your neighbors. And you use these to manage the the incoming numbers. And the third thing that you can do beside passing or deciding to fight and then deciding whether to attack or defend is giving your power to someone else. So since these powers are very numerical, very easy to, to, to determine, you simply give that option to another player for one turn. And so it's it's not very eventful, is one card at a time, but at the same time it's interesting and the art and the way you care about things is so charmingly done. Your characters can flip to their animal side or furry side <laughs> and, and become stronger. Makes it almost thematic in a way because you are removing and adding little barricades. If you build a barricade, there is a barricade. And if people go past you, they burn a, a barricade or a house. And if you can defend the car, the, the, the village in a good way, at the end of each round, the villagers help you rebuild and things like that. So there is a little bit of theme in there, and I really liked it. Yeah, I remember playing that, and I remembered not hating it. <laughs> Which is like an 8 on the out of 10 for oh, co-op scale. On the co-op scale, okay. Yeah. I will not, I will not raise to the bait. <laughs> uh, the game that we wanted to talk about today was Camel Up or Camel Cup, the controversial naming of the game. Officially, it's Cam- Camel Up, but... We have been defeated. The new, the new version is clearly Camel Up, uh, so they have... They have defeated our dream of uh, of claiming that the designer, the graphic designer, knew better. Um, yeah, we chose Camel Up to be in theme with Brain Burners. No, um, <laughs> actually, to, <laughs> to get to something light before delving into Brain Burners. So, Camel Up, the first edition, came up in 2014, and it's a bidding game. So Jackie, editing here with a quick note, throughout the entire discussion of Camel Up, I'm going to say bidding when I should say betting. Just consider that going forward and forgive me for my mistake. Bye. It's a racing game in which you are not actually racing, but simply straight up bidding on what happens. And I think that the reason it became noticeable early on was mainly graphical it's it's nice it has wonderful art uh, very nice wooden stackable meeples of camels 
but it was also a very good game. It went on to win the Spiel des Jahres, I think, or at least it was in the running, and it fully deserves it. So basically, on your turn, you have a multitude of ways to bid on the race. You can bid on the best camel at the end of the race, you can bid on the worst camel at the end of the race, or you can bid on the position of the camels at the end of the leg. The leg being when all of the camels have moved, because they move randomly with dice coming out from a pyramid. So on your turn, you have a very simple choice. You bet on something, or you roll one of the dice. You don't get to choose which one, but by doing so, you give a lot of information to the players after you, so you get a little consolation prize in form of a single point. Or you can place your oasis or desert, which is the only way you have to actually interact with the racing and it's often very minor because you cannot guarantee that it will trigger so the game has a very quick pace in that your choices every turn is get one of these bidding and then you keep going until the game ends so let's start with the components how do you like the new edition compared to the old edition hmm well i loved the pyramid the way it was so starting off with that i feel like the new pyramid the old pyramid was cardboard right yep so the new pyramid is plastic which i feel like would be louder i haven't played with the new edition but i feel like it would be louder because it's more like clanky rattling around versus the cardboard i don't hate it i don't really particularly like it though either are the camels plastic i think the camels are plastic the coins are plastic the dice are plastic so there is way more plastic in the new edition and beside ecological considerations i don't understand the the choice of redesign everything looks less popping for example if you look on the, the bidding the bidding ties for the new edition they are almost serious, like as if they were trying to depict a real camera race. Not completely, they're still vaguely cartoonish, but I feel that the cartoonish look of the first edition was perfect for the kind of game it was. And it is, because it's still out there. The, the edition didn't spontaneously combust when the new one came out. Well, but also the whole cartoonish part of it is so on brand for this game because you're racing camel stacks. So obviously you're not going to have a race and have things stack up on each other. Yeah. So it's, it's comical that you're running around with, you know, stacks of camels. And I think that, that it didn't need the second edition. And then you have a cardboard standee of a tree or something. Yeah. You know, I don't mind it. I just I would never I would never seek this out to replace my current copy which was good because when they announced it I was like oh do I need to get the new version now and I'm happy at the same time if someone wants to uh, to get Camel up I would never tell them oh no go to all efforts to find the first edition the second edition is absolutely fine it's nice looking and it's it's a fine game it's just that I I am enamored with the old charm old charm of the first edition they apparently have rogue camels 
that start running the race in the opposite direction. Well, that makes for more chaos, which could be good, actually. Yeah. Speaking of chaos, one of the things that I really like about Camel Up is the the rules by which the camels move, which makes me feel every time I explain it as if they were playing their own game, because I always start with that, because you need to understand how the camels move to understand what you are doing in the game. But it's something that you have very little agency on. So basically, each camel is represented by uh, a meeple, a camel shape, a chemeeple, I guess. <laughs> but then each of them has a dye of its color that goes into this pyramid, which is basically a fancy bag, although it has an elastic cardboard thing to to open and throw a die, but you could do it with the bag. For example, when we travel, we bring we don't want to bring the pyramid not to ruin it, so we, we use a bag. So a die is extracted by this from this containing and rolled. And these are all D3s, so they have two ones, two twos, and two threes, and that determines how much the camel moves. However, what makes this very interesting is that when a camel moves, it carries with it all of the camels that are stacked on top of that camel. So camels that are at the bottom of a stack, when they move, they will help their opponents staying on top of them as well. So it's not only important how much you roll, but it's way more important when you roll it. Because if you roll after the camel on top of you has moved, then you as a camel are now potentially in the lead. While if you move before them, you are helping them no matter how high you roll the die. And I think that this mechanism is so simple, and yet it offers so much variability in what can happen that makes the race exciting on its own. I almost want to take out my camel app now since we it's very hard to play in with restricted meetings because it, it shines at high, higher player count and just make the camels run on their own without bidding, without anything, just rolling by <laughs> who wins. But I think that that mechanism is actually smarter than people give it credit for. It's not just the random thing. It It's designed to have so many decision point well not decision points but uh, trying to go simply by probability is very tough because oh obviously this is the most likely option but it's predicated on two-thirds of this option and two-thirds of this option and two-thirds of this option and so the possibility of the most probable option not happening are considerably high and so it's it's important because otherwise the bidding would be simply, oh, I will always do the thing that is more statistically probable and just sometimes something else happens. While the fact that every die is important, not only what it rolls, and one, two, or three are important because the three is not always better because you want to land on other camels and things like that, but also predicating on the order in which they come out means that Every bid is an informed bid, but a very wild guess. Yeah. My favorite is when when someone takes a betting tile and you're like, there's no way that that can happen. And then you think about it and you're like, okay, well, I guess that could maybe happen. And then the stars start aligning and it turns out that they ended up getting 
exactly what they needed for that to happen. And I think it's so cool when that happens. And people are always like, yes, I did it. I knew that that was going to happen. I'm like, no, you didn't. <laughs> it's amazing, though. And I think that another thing that makes the game very accessible is that the rewards for getting a bid right are big and explosive. Like you get five coins or eight coins if you're the first one to guess the winner of the overall race correct, while penalties are small. And that's true for everyone, which still means that getting the prediction right is way more important than anything else. But it makes it not frustrating to get it wrong. It's not like, oh, you're bidding five, and if you win, you get 10, but if you lose, you lose the five. It's you get this tile, and if you win, you get five points if you get it right. And if you get it almost right because the camel is second, you get one coin. And if it's not, you lose one. So in general, there is uh, people are getting something and you're not feeling, oh, you bid correctly, I bid poorly, so now you gain and I lose. It's very rare, not impossible, but most turns you gain money. Everyone gains money because there are so many bids that can give you something and you lose so little when you lose it. But at the same time, it is a game where getting it right matters. It's not a random thing. Well, the, the resolution is random, but definitely getting bids right can lead you to a big advantage going into the final the final scoring. Yeah, I think that's always an interesting thing too is because you can always do that. So even at the very beginning of the game, you have that as an option for your first action, which is not recommended, but you definitely could say oh well the orange one's obviously going to win so you place the your bet down on that person but more frequently it happens at a sort of turning point in the game when you feel like the race could almost be over and it feels like there's a clear winner and then it's a mad dash to get your cards down because one person will go for it and then everyone's like oh well i forgot about this i forgot that we needed to get the winner correct and the loser correct so then they people try and put as many things as they can into the into that before the the race is over and that's another i think great implementation of a simple concept so you you have cards with the different colors of camels that you place on the this camel is going to win or this camel is going to lose that not only makes it so that you don't need to write down things or having scoring pads or things like that but at the same time the fact that you are you have those five cards and that the game is so frantically changing means that sometimes if you think that Blue, which by the way, in our copy is called Ulrich the Second because we named each camel and we keep track of who's winning more more races. <laughs> the only ones I remember are Ulrich the Second, which is blue, Bob, which is white, and Claudia, which is orange. I don't remember the name of the other two camels, but Green never wins in our in our game, so it's fine. But anyhow, when you choose, for example, that blue will be first, and you place the the car down. And then things change horrendously. Means not only that your blue card is now wrong and will lose you a coin on the is gonna win the race, but that if Ulrich becomes very lazy and ends up being last, when you realize he's gonna be last, you don't have the blue card to place on the last camel space. And so 
as you were saying, bidding early, it's a good strategy to try and get the full amount because at the end of the game, whoever gets the correct winner and the correct loser first gets more money and then the second one gets fewer coins and so forth and so on. But it's risky not only because you don't have much information, but because what you put on one, you cannot put into the other slot. And so it's tricky. It's a lot of fun. And I like that it plays a lot of people, but you don't feel disengaged. Everyone feels like they're doing something that is determining the order of the race. They're rolling or they're putting down their oasis or things like that. I feel like they're engaged in the race the whole time. Yeah, and I think what helps taking the pace high is, for example, again, the fact that you're not bidding, you're not placing five coins on the slot blue will be first. You are taking a tile, so you don't have to determine how much do I want to risk, how much am I investing, what are the odds compared to this. You simply grab a tile, and the tiles become less good. So, for example... That's another thing that increases interaction, increases variability, is that on the bids for each leg, which is each set of dice being rolled, which is when you reset the dice and reset the bids with the exception of the end game bids, you have tiles for each camel and you are bidding on them being first. But the first player to do so in a round can grab the tile that rewards five if that camel is first at the end of the leg. The next one is three, the next one is two. So it encourages you to add your bets. So even if blue really, really looks like it's going to be first, once I, I grab five and you grab three, the next player can go, well, you know what? Forget about blue. I'm getting orange for five. Because now, first, everything can happen, as we said. And second, even if orange is maybe less likely than blue, but now their bid is worth five rather than the worth of two that they will get from bidding on blue. And so there is this encouragement to try out different things, to not always do the obvious thing, which I think is great. There's an expansion for Camel Up, which adds more stuff. Do you know if... I think that it doesn't work with the new version. But they might have included some parts of it. Uh, it's Camel Up Super Cup which I like. It adds a boost die for the camel who is doing the worst because the the spectators cheer them up, which basically adds one smaller die. It's a D2 of that color into the bag and adds a camera with which you can try to get the best, what is called the best um, moment, which means you have to decide when you think there will be the most camels in the spot that you're taking a picture of. And it adds corrections for your bids. So it makes it a little more controlled, which I like the level to which it does. But I must say, it takes away a little bit of that. Well, you can just play it and see what happens. The timing becomes a little more important with the expansion. And I appreciate that because it gives you a little more control. It makes it a little more of a game. But especially when playing with kids or playing with family who doesn't play games, sometimes just going for the just bet on it with the basic camel up could be, could be good. Yeah. Yeah. It does make it feel more like a, a gamer game than the base edition by itself. 
Yeah, and that's three elements to explain out of six, basically. It doubles up the amount of stuff that you have to explain. The last thing that I wanted to get onto, then if you have something else, I, I'm glad to talk more. But the one thing that you can do, as I was mentioning before, to directly influence the race are these little tiles that are oasis on a side and dead desert on the other, and you place it on an empty space. And if it's an oasis, whatever camel or stack of camel that gets there moves to the next spot. And if it's on the dead desert side, wherever camels or stack of camels lands there moves one step back and they give you a coin when they do but mostly that changes the results especially because when they move back they go underneath the pile if there is someone already there so how do you feel about those i don't know i like them but i don't feel like they're needed really Mm -hmm. they add even more variability which makes it even harder for people to bet on things which is good sometimes if everyone bids on a specific camel and you're like, oh, well, now you have this obstacle to overcome. So the only way this camel can win is if this, this, and this happens. So it makes it a little muddy for me. I think that they're fine. I don't think that they're problematic to the game. I I do feel like they're just kind of meh. To me, is more that often people use it just because it's fun to throw even more chaos, but then it risks taking away that little bit of control and therefore of game that there is in Camel Up. I'm happy with the level of, of control being low, but sometimes people throw a tile there often on the desert side because it's more fun if they move back and they go underneath the pile. And you go like, but that makes your camel that you just bid on and i bid on two basically impossible to be first they're like ah sure but at least it's more chaotic and it's okay but at this point why are we just watching the camels and not playing a game so i feel that they introduce a randomness that is hard to calculate and so often ends up being just let's do this random thing and hope i get a coin from it and that I think it's my least favorite part of of the game, but but I still like it. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, I think that they're not problematic. They don't make me dislike the game, really. It's just, like I said, I don't think that they're needed, really. Yep. Anything else? No. So, to summarize, Camel Up plays up to eight. It's charming, it's fast, it's quick. Is the closest you can get to a race experience without losing your money or traveling to a place with a lot of sand. So I think we can wholeheartedly recommend Camel Up. Yes, even though we wanted it to be Camel Cup. But it's Camel Up. All right, so on to today's topic, brain burners. To be thematic, my brain has been hurting thinking of the brain burners. (laughs) I want to submit um, so, my alternative t- title, which is Burn, Brain, Burn. But <laughs> yeah, I also had a hard time figuring out first what exactly can be considered a brain burner and then coming up with a few examples that I like or that I don't like. So brain burners, what do we want to classify them as? So I try to think of games that are difficult and taxing to play mentally 
But then I realized that if I was going simply by that definition, I would not have anything that I like. Because while I like games that engage me and games that make me think, obviously I don't like to be in an unpleasant situation, right? And so I had a harder time coming up with a, a definition that went into the direction of what we were trying to say without basically reducing it to a, oh, a negative experience. Yeah. I think there's a very fine line when it comes to brain burners because it can very easily become too overwhelming, too taxing to the point where you check out of the game, where you're like, I, I don't know anymore. I can't think about it anymore. I'm, it's too much. My brain hurts. I, I do like games where it's funny when, like, when we're playing, you'll say something like, oh, we broke Nathan. Because <laughs> I'll just stall on one turn. And, you know, I don't like being a turn turtle, but I do like those kinds of games where I'm like, okay, I just need to like finish calculating like this, 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 this. And then so in order to do that, I need to do this next turn, then this, this turn, then I should have done this last turn. But to correct that, I'm going to do this this turn. So it's I like that level of thinking and the level of thought. Brain burners are very low luck a lot of the time which is what makes them brain burners because you're like, okay, well, I know that this is what's going to happen. So I know that I need this and I know that I need these resources and that'll happen exactly in two turns based on this. So it's a lot of calculating, which I know some people don't really like, but Mm -hmm. I think that it's, it keeps my brain very active. I like being actively engaged in the game process i do see that sometimes it can detract some games that i that are like closer to like medium range versus the medium heavy to heavy games those i can focus more on not only what i'm doing but what other people are doing Mm -hmm. whereas in brain burners i can't really look at what other people are doing and that's where i think my struggle is with them because I never get to that point where I'm like, okay, well, this is clear. This is clear. This is clear. Okay. I've got my time figured. I got everything that I need to figure out. Now, what does everyone else need? Yeah. And that's particularly painful in like worker placement where you, you aren't really paying attention. Like, Oh, this person clearly needs this space and I need this space, but I think that other people are going to go for this space first. And then you go, oh, well, I should have gone to this turn, this spot first. And then the next turn, I could have gone to the other space. And that's where I'm a step off of feeling very comfortable with brain burning games. Mm-hmm. But for me, first of all, I must say that I really, really like the term turn turtle. Uh, I love that. Um, <laughs> but also, I try to look around for ideas and I figure out that one thing that I am probably disconnected with uh, the majority of of people in the hobby when I was looking at weight. Weight seems to be predicated on the number of rules but to me the number of rules don't necessarily make a puzzle harder they just make it a little more boring and so for example I figure out that Bora Bora is considered very high and I like Bora Bora, but I don't 
consider it particularly complex in terms of decision making. And I found that often, with few exceptions that we will talk about, games that get very complex, very heavy or considered very heavy, I don't find particularly more complex to play, but just more boring. And this for for me has been the case with there are a few friends of mine that I play with that they are normally very very competitive, very good players, but they really like some of these very long, very involved, very heavy, brain burning kind of Euros. And I tend to do extremely well at those and hating them. Not hating my friends, hating the games. Which is really weird because there was a period where specifically a lot of these were coming out. And people who like to play these more involved, heavier, more rules, more things to consider kind of Euros. And we would play it and I would do particularly well at those and absolutely hate them while they were lost in the thing but still liked it and so it's weird to me because often people assume when i meet new people that the fact that i tend not to like particularly heavy euros particularly long and involved and a lot of stratified rules kind of euros is because i want something less difficult but for me it's actually opposite normally the longer the euro the better i do it's just that I don't like the process. I think that at some point, games in the effort of making the puzzle more complex start piling up things that, sure, you need more time to work through, but they detract from the purity and the beauty of a clever mechanism. And so probably what is usually considered a brain burner is not for me because I prefer to probably burn my my brain in a faster, more contained, more laser-focused kind of thing. Not necessarily a simple game or a game with just one or two rules, but those middle-of-the-way Euros, which are the ones that I tend to prefer in general, right? Yeah. One that I thought of immediately, which I don't think you're going to consider it to be a brain burner because you have played it so much and you're just good at it (laughs) is Zolkin. It's actually my number three, which surprises me because I feel like for you, it like just clicks for me. I have to really, I think it's because I haven't played it very often and my game, my games of it are very spaced out and it's so difficult to wrap your head around. So for people who don't know, Zolkin is by... Simone Luciani and Daniele Tascini. Oh, of course it is. <laughs> um, so it's the first in a trilogy of games that all start with T. <laughs> no, they're all similar-ish. They're about an ancient people who are trying to make a civilization. So there's Zolkin the Mayan Calendar... Teotihuacan City of Gods, maybe? Yep. And Tekenu Obelisk? Obelisk of the Sun. Obelisk of the Sun. They all start with T, and they all have a colon in them. (laughs) And that's why they're a trilogy. (laughs) But they are all by the same designers. They are all... They're all very different, 
but all very, very, very good in their own right. And they do something very unique to them. So in Zulkin, you are placing workers, and but you have to pay if you're placing more than one worker. You have to pay a certain amount of corn, and it increases as you place more people. You also have to pay for spots if you're not placing them in the zero spot, which you can only do if someone is already occupied in the zero spot. So there's a lot of managing your money, which is the corn. And also, though, you have to wrap your head around, you either are placing the people or you're taking them off and resolving the actions. You don't get the actions until you take them off. So it's very... You have to wait for it to be the certain a certain time, and you but you want to make sure that you have all the resources that you need to get the different things. So you, I, I guess I don't think about the take place, take place. Anna had said that during our last game, I think. She was like, okay, well, if I take this turn and place this turn and take that turn. Oh, I never even think about it like that. I just, I, I just think, what do I need? How do I get it? And then I play my people. It, I don't know. It's. There's so many levels of depth to this game because of the rotating wheels and the each turn they rotate at least once. Um, sometimes they can rotate up to twice. And it's, I don't know, it's so good. I, I am kind of interested in the expansion, but I don't know how you feel about it because I think you've played with it, you said. Yeah, the expansion adds three, four things. Um, adds the fifth player, which I never, ever, ever want to play with because Solkin is, I think three is the best number. With four, it's fine. I played it recently with four. It doesn't get too long, but with, f- I don't feel the need to add another player. Then it has more buildings, which are fine. It's just more variety in buildings. It, it's the seamless part of the expansion. Just throw them in and play. Then it has special powers, which I don't like the one time I played it. People also say they're unbalanced. We talked about this before, but my problem is not that they might be unbalanced. I wouldn't know about that. It's just that they give you an advantage for doing certain things, and so they orient your strategy. And what I like in Solking is trying something different every time I play. And then they add each scoring, basically each feeding and each scoring Adds a little other condition that you can score for, and that one I like. So I am two out of four, so probably not enough to get the expansion. But Solkin here was for me as well kind of a placeholder for all of Tashini's games, for these mid-weight euros, and I was thinking in particular of the three that you mentioned, Solki, Teotihuacan, and the canoe because I have been working on a comparison, a video comparison of them, which I hope to finish this week. And they are all by Tashini with uh, Simone Luciani for Soul King, alone for Teotihuacan, and with David Tulsi for the canoe. But are games that force you to think about the next turn and the next turn before you take them. And I think that's probably what I went with the difference between an involved Euro and brain burners. Brain, the brain burning part for me comes out in the multi-turn strategy, which is what I love, what I do better at. I'm a little worse at tactical games, but at the same time, it is what makes the game more 
more mentally challenging. For example, another game that I really like is Gugong or or a lot of the Fell games, which can be very involved, but the fact that you have to evaluate the board as it is each round because it changes so much depending on in games with dice, what dice you roll, or in Gugong, what other people do with their cards, makes it a little less stressful. Tolkien, it's true that I have played it a lot and it comes more natural to me than other games, but at the same time, you cannot wait to see what will happen because nothing will happen. Sure, people will take spots that you need, but most of it, what you have to plan is, what am I going to do four turns from now? And that's what makes all of these games particularly brain-burning to me. So since you took my my spot with Tolkien, <laughs> uh, I want to talk about one that I didn't like, uh, which is Lignum. Lignum was, to me, the epitome, the, the summit of what I was talking about before, a game that is so complex, so many rules, that it makes it still playable. I played and I did well, but I didn't like it. I rated a 5.5. So Lignum, which is by Alexander Humer, and the art is by Christoph Klassen, and published by Mucus Spiele, it's it's very nice to look at. It has an old... You probably wouldn't like it because it has a very old Euro style with... It doesn't try to be artistic, but it has these colorful spots and colorful arrows. And it's simulating the production of wood and the working and collecting of wood. And it's a very good simulation, I guess, because it makes me very glad that I live in a city and I don't have to participate in the lumber production. (laughs) It was painful. And the sequence of action was smart. And you had a lot of moments in which you you realized that not only the theme worked, like you, you cut the wood and then you collect the wood and you transport the wood and then you work on the wood to make it usable for furniture. But also in terms of game mechanics, okay, you need to collect these tokens and then spend these tokens in this specific timing. So there were a lot of good and smart things. And yet it was, to me, so boring. And I feel bad because you know that I am not shy of bashing and hating on games. That's certainly not one of my qualities, being too kind to games. But this game feels like something that has been done with love, with care, and that is not a dumb game. There is not a single mechanic where you go, oh, that clearly ruins the game. How did they think of putting that in? But it was so many things that you have to take care. And sure, you do it. You do it. It's not like it's unplayable. It's a brain burner, but it's still a game that works. But in the end, it was not for me. And so this will be my my experience with a brain burner that really, really didn't work for me. I'm surprised that that is the one that stuck out to you. Because my one that I didn't particularly care for, mm-hmm. I thought was going to be on your list of ones that you didn't particularly care for. Which one? Trismegistus. Oh, fair, fair. That that definitely would fit because it's definitely a, dr- a brain burner and definitely one that I didn't like. I feel like Trismegistus adds too many levels of complexity to the point that you're cursing out your past self 
from like four turns ago where you should have taken a different die to get a specific thing. It It is like four turns ago that you needed it. And you, you know, are sitting there going, how would I have ever known that I needed this? But I mean, apparently somehow, you know, it has a lot of success, this game. People really liked it. It was popular. And I think because it was all of our first games and we played it at four players, which was super, super long, that also may have skewed my view of it more negatively. What did you feel about it? Well, first of all, that fits perfectly in the mold of a game that was very complex, had a lot of rules. I did very well at and really, really didn't resonate with me. It seems that they're good at things that I find boring. <laughs> I don't know if it's my my past stint in bureaucracy when I was very young, but to me, it was there were so many rules that were there just to be taken care of. Oh, you can move the transmutation, but you can only do one thing into another thing. Why? Just because. So you don't only have to care for how many movements you can do, but also remember that if you do this this turn, you have to do only this passage. And if you want to build this stuff, you have to wait for this and that. And you have these things that improve your board and make certain things click when you move, but they are one-time use. So you get them, you use them, and then you have to reset them. And it felt like an accumulation of little things. So I guess that's helping me getting to what I like in games that are brain burning in the right way is not the accumulation of a lot of things that therefore I have to take care of and therefore become taxing because I have so many little things to take care of, but bigger, more important decisions that reverberate in the future and therefore difficult. That's where I like my brain burning to be. So I like few crucial, difficult choices rather than a lot of choices that I feel individually are not that difficult or that interesting, but that you have to keep considering, right? Is that experience of, I want to do this. Oh, no, wait, I need to do that. Oh, no, wait, I need to do that. And so forth and so on. And each of those little things is easy to solve, but they become a big puzzle by accumulation rather than by interaction. And I think yeah. that's what, what doesn't work for me in those games. So what is your number two that you do like? My number two is Mage Knight, which is... I, I hadn't thought about it. It made perfect sense why when I saw it on a list of Brain Burnie um, games. So Mage Knight is a big, big game that when we got, we had fewer games and way more free time. So we played a lot and then played very little in the future, it's a game that people love to play solo, but I don't play board games solo that much. So it's a limited deck builder, meaning that you have your deck, but you won't add that many cards to it during the game with the map. And you go around, kill monsters, assault castles, and it's at the same time a card game, but very mathematical. Basically, you have these cards that you have to combine and you can play them and try to spend them to do different things. So you fight a monster and you can either try to kill it with range attacks or defend from their attack and then kill them with regular attacks. And so you have this card that can give me 
two points of blocking or one point of range attack. And each card can give me one point of something if I flip it face down. And this other card works against this monster. So you're trying every turn to look at what your hand is and decide where to go and what to do. There is very little sudden revelation. There are a couple of places on the board where you can go and flip a token, but normally tokens are already there. So you know what you can do. And it's a lot of maximizing what you can do with your hand, which makes it though for a very slow game. And the game in which when you have interaction with other players is usually because you take something that they're also aiming for, which can be extremely frustrating because they now they have to count everything again. But the game is very interesting. I feel it's extremely unique. It's by Vlada Cevatel, so no surprise that it's unique. Each of his games look like nothing has been done before. Dungeon Lords or Code Names or Pictomania. Everything is very different from other things in the genre. It's certainly very heavy, certainly very interesting. And that's a good feeling to me because, again, you are trying to solve one puzzle at the time. I'm trying to kill this monster. I have these resources and a couple of additional powers and other things that you can do. What can I do? And at the same time, the way you gain more spells and more cards and you can burn monasteries or you can fight dragons, it has a certain amount of theme. The art on the card is fantastic. I really think that it's a game that you want to play for all of the things around the brain burn, but that the brain burn makes very interesting on a mechanical point of view. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. My number two is Aquasphere. So good. But it is brain burny because, so I think the reason why brain burners are brain burny for me and why Aquasphere makes the list is because it is, like you said, multi-turn planning. And I'm better at single-turn planning. <laughs> I'm not as great as at the multi-turn planning. But in Aquasphere by Steffenfeld, you definitely need some multi-turn planning because it's a programming game. So you're moving a little meeple along a programming path and you have to think about all the things that you need to do and you want to do them, but you need to see if what the other person's doing. So sometimes you need to sort of pause it and, and wait a moment to see what the other person does. And there's just so much going on that it, every time I play it, my brain hurts and I, I hyper focus on like one or two things, which you can't really do in this game. You really need to be focused on a little bit of everything. And I think the reason why I hyper focus on just a few things is because otherwise it does get very, very brain burning for me. But again, you seem to do very well at this game, but I think that this is one that you like. Oh, I adore it. It's probably my favorite Euro. I say probably because it's hard to decide because it's up there with Solkin and with Macau and Lorenzo is but and those are probably the four candidates sometimes Gugong peer picks up but they haven't played it enough. Aquasphere is a game that 
I adore. It's probably the only game that I haven't lost that I have played multiple times. I mean, obviously there are a bunch of games that you play one time and then it's done. But I I really, really like it. I think what makes it less Bramburny to me is that you are limited in how, how much further you can go because you cannot program like five turns in advance like in Falcon where you can leave a meeple ride on the wheel and also because the order of the actions that you can program is kind of determined for you so there is not that you cannot really do everything which is what makes the game very beautiful to me it makes it so it has focus and I think the way it provides variety with almost no randomness. The cards that come out are random, but you can acquire them in no random ways. Makes it oh so good for me. I, it's it's a perfect pen for me. It's very very good. I do understand what you mean that it can be extremely tough, and I adore it. I have only good things to say. I probably like it even more than Macau which is saying something because I I have played Macau a lot of times and I really like it. I've played it 20 times. I can't wait to play it more. And it's great. Yeah. So yeah, I I really like it every every time I play it. Again, we have so many games that I feel like it's... For the games that are more complex, it's difficult for me when we don't play them in relatively close proximity because then I need like a rules refresher and then it's like okay well how did how do I need to do this strategy and then I usually remember how to do the strategy maybe like three turns in and I've already uh, tanked my game (laughs) (laughs) but I really I really enjoy this game I think it's very smart it feels very different than a lot of his other games but i do see the sameness of it also i see when you are trying to do all the different things but don't really have enough but you still get points through multiple ways so i see a lot of similarities but also it feels very different to me Mm -hmm. so what is your number one. So my number one is one that if someone went on BGG, and I encourage you to do so if you don't know what I'm talking about, on Burger Geek, this is marked with a, a weight of 2.2 out of 5, so quite light. And I was extremely surprised, and the only explanation I can give is that people play it more often with 4 than with 2. The game is Barony, which to me feels a chess-like game. It's completely no luck. It's a zero-sum game, meaning you are competing for the same territories and the same resources. It's a lot about blocking what other people can do. And I find it much like chess. The rules are very easy, very easy to explain. But there is nothing you can do. You have no escape if you make a mistake or if people outplay you. And I am baffled by the fact that people find it light. Whenever we play it, it's a chess-like experience. So 
extremely intense, extremely deterministic. I guess if you play with four, it, so it's basically you are moving little, the, 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 the components are stellar. You are moving little wooden meeple shaped like knights around this modular board and each action that you can do is very determined. You can move to 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 another spot or you can convert a knight into a village they found the village and so, so forth and so on but so the list of actions is extremely simple so while it's not each piece has a different ability like in chess but you have seven actions so more or less like chess the the terrains have a certain value and a certain effect. You can do certain things on certain terrains. Mountains are easier to block. Water is impassable. You can build cities, but not on forests, things like that. But everything is so predetermined that you have to think about, okay, if I move here and they move there, then I can move here and now they cannot do that. And so much like in chess, you're trying to outmaneuver and outflank your opponent. I've played. All of my plays of these two players with one exception. So I imagine that can be the reason that maybe when you're playing it with four, it becomes more, uh, oh, let's go for the leader or, oh, you are defending against him. Therefore, she will attack you on the other side or things like that. But when played as a two-player game, I mean, I used to play chess. I was never a great player, but this is up there for complexity. Yeah, I've played this game with you. I like it. I think it's fun. Maybe I don't... I might just be not that great at it. <laughs> because it didn't feel very heavy to me. And so maybe the way that you think about it is the way you're supposed to be playing it. But that's not how I play it. So um, that's probably why I lost. <laughs> And I would, be, I would be curious to to see if someone listening to this knows the game and has played it. Maybe it is me that reads too much into that game rather than than the other way around. I mean, people seem to think it's quite light. I'm not sure, but yeah, that that's a good game. I'm glad you brought that up. My brain burniest of the brain burning games is one that you like. It is weighted at a 3.99 out of 5, which may be one of the heaviest games that you like, probably. Yeah. Anachrony. Ah, I thought about that. Yes. So Anachrony is by David uh, Tertzi, Tercy, uh, Richard Amon, and Victor Peter, and it's from Mind Clash Games. Mind Clash puts out very, very heavy games. And this is by far my favorite of their games. It may be my favorite game of all time. Is I've, it in your top five? For sure. For sure. Top five. Which, I mean, has like 30 games in it. It's like the Mary Poppins bag. Yeah. We don't mean that. Where you just keep throwing more and more things and more things come out of it. And you're like, how did more things come out of it? So yeah, my uh, it's like my thirtieth game in my top five. Um, so, <laughs> but I love this game. It is so fun, so entertaining. 
to use the innovative mechanisms of time travel and building different things and it's worker placement and you need to have the appropriate workers and you need to power up the exosuits and you need to have a certain number of of water droplets and you need to and all the spaces are competitive so you want to go there first but you need to make sure that you go there with the right person and if you go there with this person then you get a discount and so it's levels and levels and levels of complexity i never feel like it gets to a point where i'm like i i don't know whatever i never feel like that with this game i feel like there's just enough it walks that very fine line the luck that we had in this game we that is in the base game it can be mitigated out so that's something that i've talked about before and it's very easily taken out it doesn't take away from the game it doesn't add anything to the game it's it just makes it standard which makes it more euroy i feel like and i don't know it's just such a good game it's so smart it's so challenging there's it's feels amazing when you have all of the components that you need to build a super project or all of the components that you need to build a very complex building or you use a complex building multiple times and you are churning out amazing things. So it's just, it's so good. So we have talked a lot about Anachrony, so I won't repeat myself too much. But first of all, it helps that it is a visually fantastic game, I guess. But it does sit at the top of as you were saying, the complexity, which I'm realizing that people apparently, when they talk complexity, talk amount of rules. Uh, because, again, games like Twilight Imperium rank high on complexity. And and certainly, I really like Anachrony. To me, is not it's not even close to being the one that makes me makes my brain hurt the most of the ones we talked about because again it has a lot of rules but if i tackle them one at a time they they work and it sits on the right side of that line of having too many and i like to compare it to tricarion which is by the same publisher tricarion comes with a booklet of options um, that you're trying to achieve a physical booklet that you have to to go through and that certainly adds to the complexity and to the weight of the game but not in a good way i think anachronic finds the right balance between still offering engaging choices that matter and having all of these little details that you need to take care of and it's true that it it's right there right because the rule on how you wake up your worker and you can shock them awake or you can feed them awake or whatever. It seems like it's all oh, this little other thing and how many of this you can fit is yet another thing. And having to pre-program your exoskeletons or whatever, it's another little thing. And so it, it's right there, but it stops where it still makes it for a very interesting game for me the as i mentioned before if it weren't for the end game it would probably be up there for me as well i wonder if any of the of the new components that are coming hopefully soon will make the game 
better for you or if they might make it too muddy? They could push it over the line, right? It's always a risk. I like expansions in general, but expansions with euros, I tend to be a little more skeptical Mm -hmm. because euros live and die by balance and by how fine-tuned machines they are. And so I'm curious to see it also because it also looks amazing. But I... I'm wary. I'm curious, but wary. And I will certainly try it, but it might be that after we played once, I go, well, next time I play with you, I want to play just with the base game. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. For sure. Also, on a side note, the Luna is finally coming. See? I had I had trust. I had faith. So, so I'm... Uh, TMG is back in my good graces. Hooray! <laughs> Let's see if they can publish something new now because they have been doing this deluxified and all of this kind of stuff. So remember when our podcast used to be under an hour? No. That that was amazing. <laughs> I made editing so much easier. But I guess <laughs> thank you for burning your brain through this list with us. As always, please like, subscribe, share, wherever you find this. If you have left a comment somewhere and we have missed it, feel free to direct us to it, either through BoardGameGambit at gmail.com. I'm very active in responding on the Instagram also at BoardGameGambit. We are also on Facebook at BoardGameGambit. So there's a lot of ways for you to reach out if you need to get in contact with us. We would love to hear from you. We would love to hear some of your favorite brain-burning games. And if you think that some of our games were too easy to be on this list, let us know. <laughs> Someone thinks Trismegistus should be a one-weight a one game. Yeah. Well, well, I love I love being wrong, so so it's great. So signing off as always, I'm Nathan. And I'm Jackie. Goodbye. Bye-bye. <laughs>